Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Good to see you guys. Thanks for being with us. Um, I know Aaron just got done saying this, and I want to just reiterate, uh, next Sunday being Easter could somewhat be overwhelming for us as followers of Jesus at times, especially when you think about, oh, who do I invite, and what does that look like to see if my neighbor or a coworker would come? And I just want to try to simplify it for you. If every single person here that is a follower of Jesus and considers this their home church, would you just take some time between now and next Sunday and pray for one person in your life, one person that is far from God, one person that doesn't have a church home, and just be bold and invite them to come to church. And here's why that matters. I I don't care about growing our church. I don't. If our church uh, grows in number or declines, that is not ultimately up to me. That is the work of Jesus. And honestly, growing numerically is not even the goal. It's growing in depth. It's growing as disciples of Jesus. It's growing in our formation. So numbers can at times be deceiving when numbers are going up, but our formation is going down. So all that to say, I don't care about the numbers. I do care about dead hearts coming alive to Jesus. I do care about people that are uh, kind of waiting in bad news, getting good news. I do care about the fact that I really do believe that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything and how we look at our life and what it means to be alive and what it means to be human. And so I'm just saying that to say, like, if you have people in your life that you love, if you have someone in your life that you're connected to, a a family member, uh, someone on your block, someone that you work with, just pray for one person and invite one person next Sunday. Sound good? Uh, On the way out the doors, you're going to get an invite card. You can grab as many of those as you want and uh, be thinking and be praying about those people. I've already got a, a couple of people in mind, but don't, don't try to get five, six, just one person that you know that you really love and you care for, and I think that'll be a big win. I, I promise it will be a shorter service. Uh, we're gonna finish the Gospel of Mark up next week, which is crazy. It's hard to believe that we've been in it. Today marks 43 weeks that we've been in this book, and it's really bittersweet. I'm kind of sad, to be honest, that we're going to wrap up our book next week. But the Gospel of Mark, we're going to end on the resurrection story next Sunday. So it'll be short. It'll be brief. I'll be preaching, hopefully, a clear gospel sermon. And, and, and I pray that it'll be helpful. Sound good? Okay, here's what I want to invite you to do. If you would, would you stand with me and turn in your Bibles to Mark 15? If you don't have your Bible, then we're going to have the, the word up on the screen Here's why we do this. We stand both in honor of the word, but we also stand as a symbol of us being under the authority of this word. This is truth, and we're flawed human beings. And so we're not standing above the word. We're standing underneath the authority of the word. So let me read this over us. As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away, And delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. 
But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but but he did not take it. And they crucified him, And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And when they had crucified, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Father, I pray this morning as we look at Mark 15, I pray that the one thing, the one thing that would come clear today is your great love for us. And I just confess, I've prayed about this already and I felt this leading up to today. There is, there's not a way I could put a sermon together. There's no words or eloquent series of statements that could accurately describe what you're doing here for us. And so I'm just trusting that it's gonna be your power at work and your spirit 
Would you come and would you move? And where there are barriers that exist in my life and in the lives of my friends that are here today between your presence and your love and, and what you've done, I pray that today those barriers would come crashing down. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can take a seat. To my right, to your left, there's a fairly large wooden cross. And I, and I wonder how many of you guys have walked in and seen that or noticed it. And I'll, I'll just be honest with you, most Sundays, I don't even acknowledge that it's there kind of stuffed away in the corner. Maybe you walked in today and you didn't even notice that there was a cross in the corner, which is really interesting because we would walk in and notice other aspects of a building. Like you might notice the art that we have, you know, around this walking track. And then you might notice that we have a walking track, which tees you off to the fact that this wasn't always a church. This at one time was a 24-7 fitness club in the late 80s. But there's other things at our building that you might notice. You might not have noticed the cross in the corner. And that's weird, to be honest. It's weird because in any other ancient Roman culture, if somebody was to walk in that lived in Rome or lived in Judea, this would be the thing that would take their breath away. This would be the thing that would cause a visceral reaction. This would be the thing that would elevate their heart rate and for some even create some PTSD. And the question in their minds would be, Who is getting tortured and executed today? What evil have they committed? What crime have they done? Will we see a ton of blood? How long will this go on? How long will this last? See, something has shifted with our understanding of the cross in in a culture. Like today, the cross, in in its most healthy sense, represents the symbol of Christianity, which is really interesting, isn't it? That a cross is the symbol of Christianity, not an empty tomb, not a fish, not, I mean, there's other options in scripture, but the cross is the symbol of Christianity. And at its worst, the cross is just a meaningless piece of jewelry or some piece of artwork that you hang up on a wall that you don't even really know what it means. But the cross in history, the cross specifically in Roman history was an execution device. It was a tool used to murder enemies of the state. And if you've ever heard of the Pax Romana growing up uh, in high school, you've heard about the peace that Rome brought to the world. Ironically, the peace that Rome brought to the world was through the cross. It, It was a way that if it symbolized anything, it symbolized if you stand in our way, if you rebel against Rome, if you fight against Rome, if you're an enemy of Rome, this crucifixion is coming for you. This horrific death is coming for you. And so really think about the cross more like you would think about the hangman's noose or the electric chair or a lethal injection with a bed and straps where you strap down the person who is about to experience the death penalty for a crime that they've committed. We walk in and we don't even notice it, but it would have been tangibly felt. It would have been a visceral response from anyone else about 2,000 years ago in a Roman culture. How did that happen? How did the cross go from being a normal, everyday form of execution for the worst of the worst to something that you and I could walk into a room and not even notice? How did it become the symbol of Christianity? Well, the answer to that question is is in Mark 15, and you don't have to dig very deep to see it, but there's actually layers here that I want to show you, specifically three different layers, three different lenses, if you will, that I want to put on with you so that we can look at Mark 15 from different angles and try to really grasp an understanding of what exactly happened with the cross, what exactly happened with the death of Jesus, and why does it matter? Now, before we get into that, there's just some historical facts that you and I need to explore together. So look with me at verse 21, and let's just kind of start there. Here's what verse 21 says. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, 
who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. It's interesting, if you remember back in chapter 8, where Jesus said the true mark of a disciple, all disciples are called to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow after Jesus. Simon of Cyrene becomes literally the first person who physically does this. He physically takes up his cross, and he follows behind Jesus. Look at verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to, de- to decide what each should take. Now notice this. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. The, the, the reason why the story is significant is because of the level of detail that John Mark is going to the trouble of mentioning. Did you notice, like, the level of detail about Simon of Cyrene, and then he's the father of Alexander and Rufus? And you think, in a day and age where papyrus is hard to come by, why add extra words in there? What's the point of adding extra detail like that? He's naming location and time and place, and he's giving a level of specificity here, and here's why. Because this is not some made-up story. This is not some fairy tale that we've created. The cross is an established fact of history. This actually happened. A man named Jesus was hung up on a cross and was crucified. And what's interesting is about that Simon of Cyrene having two sons, Alexander and Rufus, one of those sons, Rufus, shows up later in the New Testament, Romans 16.3. And what's interesting is John Mark is in Rome writing to Romans, and it's almost like he's saying, oh yeah, by the way, Rufus, some of you guys go to church with Rufus, you can ask him about this story. He actually physically carried Jesus' cross up the hill to Golgotha. It's like, go check out the story. It actually happened. Christianity is not just some thing that we made up to feel better about ourselves. We're grappling with real historical events that actually happened and trying to make sense of what those events mean for us and our world today. Now, notice the brief and abrupt statement in verse 24. And they crucified him. The most significant event in history mentioned in four brief words. And this isn't just John Mark's way of describing it. Every gospel account uses these exact four words, and they crucified him. They don't elaborate. They don't give the gory details. They don't try to pull and tug on your emotions by talking about the blood and talking about the process. And in fact, they didn't really even need to. Do you know why? Because everybody reading those four words when John Mark wrote this would have known exactly what those four words meant. They'd witnessed hundreds upon hundreds of crucifixions in their lifetime. Most of what we know about crucifixion comes not from the gospel accounts, although some of what we know specifically about Jesus' crucifixion does, but most of what we know comes from history. Crucifixion was designed by its very nature to be an utterly humiliating and shameful way to execute its victim. If you were a horrible criminal, then you, in Rome's mind, deserved a horrible, slow, painful way to die. It was so horrific that it was illegal to crucify Roman citizens. That's how bad it was, that they wouldn't even allow their own citizens to undergo this punishment. They would occasionally crucify women, very rarely, and when they did, they turned the women around to face the cross, so that way, if you're a bystander watching a crucifixion happen, you would see the back of the woman and not the face, because it was so awful to, to, to behold a death by crucifixion. There's a word, excruciating, that you and I use in our culture today. That word, excruciating, has its origins in 
the cross. It literally means from the cross. So when you talk about oh, the pain is excruciating, it's trying to get at a type of pain that's unique to someone who is a victim of a death like this. The victims would be forced to carry the crossbeam. Uh, the patabellum is what it's called. It's the long horizontal beam, this heavy beam. And they'd be forced to carry that to the place of execution. And where the place of execution was, there'd be a socket in the ground and a vertical beam. The vertical beam would uh, essentially uh, attach to the horizontal beam and they would either tie the victim or often nail the victim, hands and feet to the cross and then hoist it up and slam it down into the, the socket that was in the ground. And we often picture this as something that would happen like way up high, almost like the cross that we have over here. It's big, tall, high. But actually, crucifixions in this era were happening at eye level to everybody else, and they were happening in a public environment, like a shopping center or a parking lot. And the goal was so that you could walk up to the victim, and if it was someone that had done a crime against you, you could punch them, or you could spit in their face, or you could mock them. You were eye level with the victim as they hung there. And often crucifixions, we know from history, were not just a matter of hours, it was days. They would hang there exposed to the elements night and day, day and night, for days, sometimes four, five, six days even, as they'd eventually die either from a lack of food or water. Often they would die from shock or exposure or asphyxiation, where your lungs basically fill up with fluids and you're not able to, to breathe and you drown in your own fluids. We know that the, the, the plaque that would hang above the victim would list out the crime of what they did. So if you were a murderer, it would say that. If you were a robber, it would say that. Or whatever your crime was, it, it would read on a plaque above so everybody knew why it was that you were hanging there. And what's interesting about Jesus' story of crucifixion is that it doesn't go on for days. We know that he was beaten severely beforehand, so much so that Jesus, who had just stayed up all night at a mistrial, where he didn't get any sleep as he was getting wrongfully accused for crimes he didn't commit, he's, he's unable to even carry his crossbeam to the place of execution, and Simon of Cyrene comes in to carry it for him. We know that Jesus dies on a cross within a matter of hours of hanging there. Now, let me just ask this, maybe with as much honor as I can, why does that matter? Like, what's so significant about a Hebrew man named Jesus dying on a cross? Because, friends, hundreds and hundreds, in fact, thousands and thousands of Hebrew men died on crosses. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were executed by Rome via crucifixion. What makes his death so unique? Well, it's not just a historical event. It's a deeply theological and spiritual event, too. And with that in mind, I want to give you three different ways to look at this, three different lenses, if you will, to look at Mark 15. So as we go deeper, here's the first thing I want you to see, the characters. Who killed Jesus? This is the question. Who killed Jesus? Who is responsible? Who, who is it that we should point the finger at and place the blame and say, you, you're the, you're the reason why Jesus is experiencing this horrible thing? Why did this happen? Well, in Mark 14 and 15, we're given several characters that we can point the finger to and look at. The first is Pilate. Now, Pilate is the, uh, essentially the most powerful Roman uh, political leader at the time underneath Caesar himself in this region. 
Uh, He was the governor of Judea, so his only boss was Tiberius Caesar. He reported to Tiberius. And his goal essentially was to keep the peace among the Jewish nation, keep them happy so that they don't rebel, but if they do rebel, squash it so that he doesn't lose his job as the Roman governor. And we know from history that Pilate had already been in trouble by Tiberius at least two or three different occasions uh, and was kind of like his job was on the line is probably the best way to say it. Pilate, his job was on the line. And so what's happening is this is Passover weekend. There's an influx of people and there's this revolt, this uprising, and the religious leaders have this guy that they want executed and Pilate cannot ignore it because the claim is that he's saying he is the king of the Jews. Imagine if Tiberius Caesar hears that Pilate lets some guy who's claiming to be the king go and and didn't investigate that. But here's the problem. As Pilate begins to investigate Jesus, he realizes, oh, this man is actually innocent. This man hasn't done a crime. This man is not guilty of what these people are saying he's guilty of. And so Pilate, on numerous occasions, at least three or four different occasions, tries to release Jesus, tries to get him off the hook. But he's unable, and here's why. Look at verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. Pilate knew he was innocent, but the crowds were putting up such an outrage that he was nervous that word would get back to Tiberius Caesar and he would lose his job. And so Pilate does the thing that is wrong to protect himself. Do you know what you call that? Call that cowardice. When you don't have the courage to do the right thing for fear of what it's going to do to you, that's called cowardice. Now, Pilate's to blame. Like even in our most historic Christian uh, testimony of our faith, the Apostles' Creed, it says that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. But how did Jesus get in the hands of Pilate in the first place? Well, the second character that we need to kind of think about is the religious leaders. Yes, Pilate put Jesus to death, but how did he get Jesus? Well, the religious leaders handed Jesus over to Pilate in the first place. And was it because Jesus had done a crime? No. Was it because he was guilty of something? No. It was because they actually hated the uh, type of uh, the, the type of uh, respect that Jesus was getting, the type of environment that was happening as people were following Jesus and his fame was spreading. And Pilate catches on to this, and we actually read this in verse 10. For he, Pilate, perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. In other words, that he sees through the facade and he goes, I know that they don't think that he really did anything wrong. All that's happening here is they're envious of Jesus. He's more successful. He teaches with more authority. He's got a bigger following. He's got, he's got much more fame than we have, and he is threatening our position. So it was out of envy, Pilate sees, that they handed Jesus over to him in the first place. So Pilate and his cowardice, the religious leaders and their envy, There's one other character that we need to look at, and that's Judas. How did the religious leaders even get Jesus in the first place? Well, it was Judas. And if you remember the story, Judas, this whole time he's been following Jesus, has been living a double lifestyle. One as a faithful disciple of Jesus, and the other as someone who has been stealing from the money bag. The disciples and Jesus had a shared money bag, kind of like a bank account, and Judas was like skimming off the top the whole time. And there was an event in chapter 14 of Mark where there's this woman who comes in with a very expensive alabaster flask of ointment to anoint Jesus. It was like a a year's worth of wages. Imagine how expensive that was. She cracks it open and anoints Jesus. And we find out in John's gospel 
that Judas is outraged. He says a comment that sounds so self-righteous. He's like, this could have been sold and, and the money given to the poor. And then John, the apostle, comments on it and he says, but actually Judas wanted the money for himself. He was stealing from the money bag. And it was directly after that event that we read this in Matthew 26. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and noticed his question. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. So Judas betrayed Jesus out of greed. You've got Pilate and his cowardice. You've got the religious leaders and their envy. And you've got Judas and his greed. Is that it? Like we can just point the blame at them and say they're responsible. Well, there's actually briefly two other groups of people that we need to look at. The fourth is us. Friends, this is a story where when you see the envy of the religious leaders, you notice something about your own envy at play too. When you see the cowardice of Pilate, you notice something about your own lack of courage as well. When you see Judas and his greed, you notice that there are times where you and I love money in a way that would actually betray our love for Jesus. When you look at Peter and the way that he denied even knowing Jesus out of fear, you think, that reminds me of the times that I do that. Here's the point of the story. It's not so that you and I can place the blame at Pilate or the religious leaders or Judas and say, they're responsible. Friends, you and I need to look in the mirror and realize that it was actually our sin that put Jesus on the cross. As the old hymn says, how deep the Father's love for us, it was my sin that put him there. It was my sin that held him. Friends, here's the story of humanity and our sin. And I know this is not a very popular thing, but the problem with us is not that we're just simply children of our environment. The problem isn't that we were just wounded as little kids and if we can get enough therapy, then we'll overcome those wounds and be the types of humans that we can be. There's truth there, but there's more to the story. The problem isn't that I've hurt some people in my life or that I've failed to live up to my potential or that at times I give in to disordered desires. Friends, there are times where in my heart and in yours, the sin is actually sin itself directly against a holy God. And that sin deserves death. Not only does your sin and my sin unleash death in our world, but it deserves death because of the type of chaos that our sin unleashes in this world. It was your sin and mine that hung Jesus there. That's why John Stott says, before we can see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. You can't read the story and point the blame outside of yourself. Ultimately, you've got to point the finger at yourself and myself and say, I did this. And that leads to one other character, probably the most important character of all, and that's God himself. Who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Well, according to the Bible, God himself is responsible for his own death. You see, here's what's interesting about this, that Jesus is not going to the cross as a martyr or as a victim. He says himself, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I have the right to pick it up again. You see, the whole point of why Jesus came into the world was not simply to teach. It was not simply to live. It was not simply to offer a better way to be human. It was not simply to uh, heal and to raise the dead. The ultimate reason why Jesus entered into our world, why he left heaven to come to this earth as a human being, was to go to the cross on our behalf. This was why. So yeah, there's a human way that you can look at the, the different people at play. You can look at Pilate and the religious leaders and Judas and us, 
But from a divine perspective, it was actually God himself. God the Father had the plan to love the world enough to send his son in this way. The son loved the Father and loved us enough to say yes to that plan. And even in the garden where he said, is there any other way but not my will but yours be done, willingly goes to the cross on our behalf. And the scriptures hold both the human and the divine uh, way that the cross plays out together. We read this in Acts 2, verse 23. This Jesus, look at this, delivered up, why? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So is it true that my sin put him there? Yes, but in an even bigger, more beautiful way, it was his plan that put him there. And maybe we might even say it was his love and his mercy that took him to the cross. So why? Why was this the plan? Why the cross? And that leads to the second thing I want you to see, which is the irony. Why did Jesus die? Now, Mark is laced with gospel irony. If you've been with us over the last several months as we've been working through this book, you've seen it again and again. Mark is intentionally laced with irony that is meant to kind of communicate something about the good news of the gospel to us. And here's what's so crazy about this specific story is that the disciples this entire time believe that Jesus is the Messiah, which is another way to say king, right? They believe that Jesus is the king of Israel, the Messiah, and they all in their minds have thought up until this moment that Jesus is headed for a throne, that he's going to become the king over Israel, he's going to be given a crown, and he's going to ascend to a throne. But here's what's ironic, friends. He actually is in this story. The story of Jesus heading to the cross is his coronation, and it is his enthronement. But it's not the type of coronation and enthronement that anybody else saw coming. Let me just give you the gospel irony here and a few things to notice. They actually mock Jesus as king, They place a crown of thorns on his head, a purple robe on his body, and salute him as the king. The plaque over the top of the cross that reads out his crime says, king of the Jews in multiple languages. And yet, friends, ironically, he is the king over every king. And they don't see it. They mock him by saying, Aha, you who would destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And yet, friends, ironically, that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this moment. The temple is not a rep- it's, it's not the, the physical temple structure. It is his body. And he's saying, I am being destroyed, but in three days I'm going to rise again from the dead. The temple will be rebuilt. They mock him by saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself But friends, the irony is that he truly is saving others and therefore he cannot save himself. If he were to save himself, he would not be able to save us. This is the gospel irony and they don't see it and they're using it to mock him. And then finally, they mock him by saying, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And yet, friends, ironically, it's actually by Jesus not coming down from the cross, by him hanging on the cross that you and I are able to truly see and truly believe the depths of the love of God for us. It's just laced with irony. And yet, the biggest piece of gospel irony is actually not there. The biggest piece of gospel irony in the story is with this man named Barabbas. Now, we don't know much about Barabbas from history, but what we do know is that he was a convicted criminal. He was a Jewish man who was in prison, presumably awaiting his death sentence. We think that that 
third cross that day was reserved for Barabbas. Him and the two other robbers were meant to die that day. He was apparently uh, someone who had rebelled against the Roman Empire and either led an insurrection and murdered someone or was a part of an insurrection and murdered someone. We're not really sure. Either way, Barabbas is, in many ways, the type of warrior leader that everybody else expected the Messiah to be. He's going to defeat our enemies, and he's going to rebel, and he's going to lead a charge, and, and he's going to dominate Rome. And, and they expected this fight king, warrior leader to come as the Messiah. Barabbas, in many ways, is the type of Messiah that everybody thought Jesus was going to be. Now, don't miss the gospel irony here. His name is Barabbas, which in Hebrew literally means son of the Abba or son of the Father. So do you see what Mark is doing here? There are two Jewish men, both Messiah figures, both sons of the Father. One is a convicted murderer and the other is innocent. One deserves to die on the cross. We think again that that cross was his that day. And the other deserves to live. And yet the innocent man takes his place on a cross and the guilty man goes free. Jesus ends up dying so that Barabbas can end up living. Friends, this is so much more than just Mark being a brilliant writer or literary genius at play or simple irony. This is the beating heart of the gospel. This is the beating heart of the story of Christianity. If you don't get anything else, this is the whole point. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Romans 5 says, for while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, this is the whole point, that we are Barabbas. We've done the crime. We're the guilty party. We deserve to die. We don't deserve to live. And yet someone named Jesus, God in the flesh, stood in our place and died the death that you and I deserve to die, which means you and I get to go free. Someone suffered so that I could live. Someone absorbed a punishment that was reserved for me. This isn't just a historical event. This is a profoundly spiritual and theological event. We are Barabbas. And yet Jesus himself took our place on a cross as our stand-in, as our substitute. And on that cross, he took our sin upon himself. He took our shame upon himself. He took the brokenness that we've unleashed in the world on ourselves, the disordered desires that we've given into. He took our failures, the things that we've done and the things that we have left undone. He took that on him and he died for us so that we could live, so that we could breathe oxygen in our lungs, so that we could experience the love of God, not the justice of God, so that we could go free and have the presence of God rather than the wrath of God. This is what it means when we say that Jesus died on a cross as a sign and a demonstration of his love because what's more loving than to take someone else's place and all the brokenness that they deserve to experience themselves to remove it from them and place it on him instead. John Stott says it this way, the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, 
Well, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which, to, which belong to man alone. See, I grew up in church, and like many of you, I heard this story hundreds and hundreds of times, and it never quite made sense. Like, it sounded a lot like this. Jesus loved me so much that he ran into a burning building and died for me as a demonstration of his love. It's like, well, I mean, I guess that means something, but why run into a burning building? I mean, that's, that's intense, but I don't fully get it. Or Jesus loved me so much that he jumped into the ocean and he drowned. That's how much he loves me. But friends, when you understand that you and I were in the burning building and that him running in the burning building actually results in him losing his life so that you and I could be rescued out of it, it changes everything. When you understand that you were the one, I was the one in the ocean drowning, and Jesus jumps in to rescue us, and by rescuing us, he actually gives his own life and drowns in our place, it changes everything. When you understand what's actually happening here, that it's not just, oh, a demonstration of his love, but an actual sacrificial aspect of his great love for you, that he would rather die so that you could have life That changes everything. And that leads me to the last thing that I want you to see, which is the result. Why? Why does the the death of Jesus matter? Why does it change everything? What, What did it actually accomplish for us? Well, a lot of the answer to that question is actually found in the resurrection. So we're going to look at that next week. You really can't understand the cross of Jesus without understanding the resurrection of Jesus and vice versa. You can't understand the resurrection of Jesus without really understanding the cross of Jesus. So it's hard to kind of pull those things apart. We'll get to that next week. But for now, I want you to see that John Mark includes two things that immediately happen as a result of the death of Jesus that are profoundly good news for you and I. Two things that immediately happen when Jesus breathes his last that show us the significance of what he was accomplishing for us on the cross. Look at verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's the first thing that happens, the curtain. I want you to think about the curtain. Now, because you and I are not steeped in religious culture, Jewish religious culture, we didn't grow up as uh, Jewish people with a temple concept, then it's hard really for us to understand the significance of that line in this gospel account. But it's so significant because the temple was the dwelling place of God with humanity. And, and yes, it's true that God can't be contained in the highest of heavens. He's everywhere at once and he can't be contained by, by anything. And yet in a more specific way, the temple was actually the dwelling place of God with humanity. It was the place where he chose to specially dwell and allow his presence to bless and to, to comfort and to forgive and to heal the people of Israel. This was the place where all of humanity was meant to encounter the presence of God in the temple. Here's the structure. It had a temple complex that had these different areas of gates. And then inside of the temple complex, there was the temple. And inside of the temple, you had two sections. You had the holy place And then you had the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And separating the holy place 
from the most holy place was a curtain or a veil. Think of like this thick wall. It was actually a few feet thick. It was not just like a small curtain. It was a few feet thick. And no one was allowed in there because this was where God's actual presence dwelled. Imagine God in his presence sitting as the king over the Ark of the Covenant that was inside of this place. This is where God's presence is. If you want to know like what's a zip code on planet Earth, it's inside the most holy place right there. Only one time a year, one person was allowed to go in. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest, not just any priest, the high priest, he would walk through the veil with all these rituals and he would encounter the presence of God. A sacrifice for sins would be made there and that would be on behalf of the people of Israel. But we know that by the time Jesus showed up on the scene, the temple and its religious leaders had failed at every level. They, they brought all these sacrifices and were making money off of poor people so that this turned into like a way of making money. Uh, the religious leaders in multiple ways distorted what was actually meant to have happen here. And one of the most tragic failures of the temple was by the time Jesus was on the scene, the religious leaders had created all of these exclusions where certain people were deemed unworthy and unclean and not allowed into the presence of God. In fact, let me show you this picture. This picture here is of the temple complex. Where that arrow is is where the temple is. And only Jewish men were allowed in there. Only Jewish men were allowed in that inner part of the temple complex. This next picture here where the arrow is is uh, known as the, the court of women. So there was a barrier from that inner court, and this barrier was where women were allowed. So if you're a Jewish woman, you weren't allowed into the deeper place because that was seen as you getting too close to the presence of God. And if you're a woman in this culture, you were deemed as not worthy. You were deemed as someone who is unclean. You were not allowed into that. That was never God's intention, never his heart. You'll never read anything about that in the Old Testament. This was created after the fact. And then beyond that, this third picture here is known as the court of the Gentiles. This is where if you are not a Jewish person, you are allowed only to this place. Again, this is not God's original intention. He wanted all people to be brought in and to to encounter the presence of God, and yet all these painful, tragic exclusions had taken place. In fact, in 1871, archaeologists discovered a piece of that wall, the court of the Gentiles, and it's essentially a warning sign, a keep out sign. Don't come in because you're dirty and you're unclean. And here's what it says, this piece right here. It says, No foreigner may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary in the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself, shall he put the blame for death, his death which will ensue. In other words, if you, as a Gentile, which is anyone who's non-Jewish, come closer to the presence of God, you're going to die. We're going to kill you. You're not allowed in here. You're unworthy and you're unclean. Here's the last picture I want you to see. And this is of Golgotha, where that arrow is, is where Jesus died, right outside of the city. And here's the thing I want you to notice, is that while Jesus was hanging on the cross, he would have been able to turn to his left and see the temple complex. And as he was dying, right there outside of the the city, near the temple, the curtain that separated us from God was completely torn in two from top to bottom. Here's what that means, that all those people that the religious leaders had said, you're unworthy, you're filthy, you're unclean, you're not allowed. When Jesus died, when his body was broken and his blood was shed, the temple was ripped in two, and it's as if God is yelling at every dirty person, 
Every unworthy person, every unclean person, every person that has shame from their past or shame and sin from their story, it's as if God himself is yelling at each one of us and saying, you can come on in now. I've actually blown up the barrier that exists between me and you, and my death on a cross has welcomed you in. Come on in. The presence of God is here, and it's for people like us. People that are dirty, people that are unworthy, people that have been excluded either because of what other people have said or because of what we've done. Breaks right open. Second thing I want you to see as we close is what results right after that. This is fascinating. Verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So the second and last thing I want you to see is the centurion. Friends, the temple, the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom, right open. And who is the very first person who decides to go into the presence of God? It's a centurion. It's a Roman centurion who had just killed Jesus. He had just participated in the execution of Jesus, and yet he is the very first person actually in this entire gospel narrative. Listen to this. The first person in all of Mark who gets Jesus's identity right. There's not any other human in the entire story that gets it right. No one sees Jesus clearly. It's said at the very beginning that God the Father at his baptism says, this is my son with whom I'm pleased. It's said again at the transfiguration, this is my son with whom I'm pleased. But no one else sees it. No one else gets it. And yet as soon as Jesus dies, this curtain is torn, this veil is torn, and the very first person to walk into the presence of God is a Roman centurion, the ones that Peter and the other disciples had deemed their enemy. And here's the point, friends. The point is this, that when that centurion walked into the presence of God, fully identifying who Jesus really is, he did not experience wrath. He didn't experience anger. He didn't experience outrage from God or have God the Father say, you just killed my son. How dare you? You know what the centurion experienced? A God who welcomed him, a God who forgave him, a God who covered his shame, a God who restores him back to a right relationship with the Father. And this Roman centurion, in a very real way, essentially becomes the first Christian, saying, Jesus died for me. So I don't know your story. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what hidden stuff lies in your past. I don't know what stuff lies in your past that if you would give a million dollars to have it ripped out of your story, you would and you can't. But what I know is that when you were unrighteous, Christ died for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. The godly for the ungodly. And if that's you today, it's as if God is shouting out to you, come on in. You can be forgiven too.